dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by the Witness of Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And normally I'd be introducing the president of the witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Jamar Tisby, but he's blue check verified. So, you know, he's doing things that blue check verified people do, which we don't know anything about. You know, we don't know anything about that, but (laughs) Jamar is doing that. So I have a pinch hitter, your favorite pinch hitter, Pastor Aaron James. What's going on, brother? Hey man, I'm good. Let's just say I'm sitting in the big chair today. Yeah, there you go. There you go, man. Look, you, you got your own podcast coming, so that's going to be your chair here in a minute. So, And speaking yeah, of podcasts, man, man we got to talk about Once Upon a Time in Wakanda. Aaron, myself, and Bo, we've recorded this podcast miniseries for fans of Black Panther or people who just got introduced to the comic book character and the film and movie version of T'Challa. And so we talk about so many different things. And so if you guys want to listen in on those conversations, you can follow us on Twitter at Wakanda Podcast, or you can go to wakandapodcast.com. And it's doing pretty well on iTunes, you know, top 40 on iTunes and TV and film, which is a surprise, I think, to us in general. But hey, it's a cool thing. We'll take it. And we want you guys to continue sharing it to your circle of influence, your friends and family who just may want to be Wakanda forever and stay there. So be sure to share that. And we also want you guys to mark your dates on your calendar. If you're anywhere near Dallas, Texas, on April 7th at 3 p.m., LifePoint Church, it is the second stop of the PTM live tour. And Aaron is crazy, bro. We are recording our 200th episode in the D in Dallas, bro. That's nuts to me, man. 200 episodes and I really want to pull it out of Jamar, like see how he actually feels about this. You know what I'm saying? Because I feel like he's just been keeping it low key, but he's been here from the start. But come on, Jamar, you got to let out some emotion, man. I need some tears. I need him to cry. I need him to jump up on a couch. I need him to do something because these 200 episodes, that's just nuts, man. It's crazy. And it's been an amazing journey for Pastor Mike, man. Yeah, it has, man. So guys, be sure to meet us in Dallas on Saturday, April 7th. Continue to follow us on Twitter at underscore Pastor Mike and at The Witness BCC to see how you can secure your tickets. And we brought Aaron onto this podcast today because we want to dovetail what was a great conversation about a quiet exodus in our last podcast. Aaron decides to just write this fire article on thewitnessbcc.com entitled Confronting Pharaoh, Why We Won't Go Quietly. And Aaron, you put pen to the pad, you start typing furiously, clearly. And man, I was like, man, we have to get this perspective because what I've seen is that there are many people who listen to our podcast who are still in predominantly white settings, whether that's people of color or our white brothers and sisters. And what we've seen is that a lot of people are still there And they may think about leaving, but they're not actually leaving. And so you're in this place of being a part of the SBC. And when there was the SBC controversy at the convention, we brought you on to speak candidly about this. And so I'm just curious, has anything changed since then, man? Have you gone through any shifts, any news to announce? I mean, your mindset, (laughs) your philosophy. I mean, let us know, man, because I think people are wondering, like, with everything that's going on, Are you going to participate in that exodus? You know, what's your thought process? You know, right now, the biggest shift has been to be even bolder, right? Um, 
Right. There's a temptation to want to be quiet or to be timid so as not to create controversy. But one of the things that we're learning is that controversy is necessary. And it's necessary because there are times where the Lord himself provokes controversy because it has a purifying effect upon our communities. And mm -hmm. it's a prophetic nature in that it holds up the mirror to the church and how we've conducted our business how we've related to one another and how the systems that we have in place are structured and whether or not those systems are healthy, whether or not they are in keeping with the righteous character and nature of God. And so definitely encouraged in this season to not be abrasive for the sake of being abrasive and definitely mm -hmm. not being quarrelsome. But I'm learning that when we see things that should not be through much prayer, and, and sometimes, quite honestly, through travail, just in the presence of God and through tears, there comes a point where you come out of that season and it's time to speak. Uh, right. There are times where the Lord gives us a word in season for the moment, for our immediate context and beyond. And I feel like that's the season that I'm in. You know, in this article, you have this very insightful comparison contrast to a pharaoh and a father. And you put those two images up, which are very vivid images for a lot of us, maybe painful images, even for some of, of our listeners who have not had a good relationship or positive relationship with their fathers. But in a positive sense, a father is supposed to foster our flourishing, right? And so our father is supposed to give us and pass down to us a legacy of righteousness, um, a legacy of peace, a legacy of prosperity, a legacy of the things that we would consider to be marks of integrity. But a pharaoh is very different, and a pharaoh is interested in setting up systems of oppression. Where did you get that rubric from? Because I think that's very insightful when you think about those contrasting images of a pharaoh and a father. Well, first of all, I really appreciate the fact that you brought up that when we talk about fathers, it's a very sore spot for some people because right. of very deep father wounds. And I was one of those people. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home, very broken dynamic. And well into my adult years, I did not know how to relate to father figures. And quite honestly, I had to learn how to be a father. And the Lord is still impressing and working and guiding me in that process as I continue to grow as a husband, man, and father. And so there was a, a time of great healing and restoration that I had to walk through personally just so I could see and begin to understand the concept of Father freely. And so it's not lost on me that those who may be listening to this episode know exactly what I'm talking about. And I just want you to know that we're absolutely sensitive to that, man. And I pray that the Lord would continue to heal and to restore. And so in seeing the nature of a father and how a father desires to give and how a father desires for for his children to flourish and, and how mm -hmm. that nature is deeply rooted in the nature and the character of God, you know, there is this marked contrast to the Pharaoh who sees success that is not his as a threat, right? Wow. That is so, and I just have to jump in here because that's so fascinating. What we see in Exodus is that Pharaoh looks at the children of Israel and says they're multiplying, 
Mm-hmm. Like, see, they're multiplying. So we have to we have to undercut their flourishing. Like, it's a sign of fruitfulness. It's a sign of growth. It's a sign of advancement. And so Pharaoh looks at his leaders and says, "We have to stop the flow of flourishing." Like we have to cut off the multiplication of the children of Israel, which is so fascinating to me because you talk about in the article the fact that a father sees this as success, that family members and people around us who are supposed to be a part of the kingdom of God with us alongside of us in brotherhood and sisterhood, they see this as a positive thing, or they should see this as a positive thing. But a Pharaoh sees this more so as a threat. I thought that was so that's so enlightening. It's something I didn't really think about before reading that. Yeah, man. You know, I remember years ago, I was on a ministry trip and we had lunch with this young couple. And this young couple just began to pour their hearts out about a very abusive type of dynamic that they were a part of within a local church. And the husband spoke of sharing with their pastor his desire to go to Africa, just feeling like there was just this call and and this this desire to 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 go to Africa in terms of ministry and things of that nature. And I never forget with tears in their eyes, they they looked across the table at us and they said that the response of the pastor was, Africa? What do you mean? I ain't never been to Africa. You ain't going to Africa. And I'm thinking, wow. And just wow. kind of how hmm. that dream and that passion that the Lord had placed in their hearts was undercut in that moment. And so instead of hmm. being encouraged and instead of being pushed and instead of instead of being kind of, you know, lovingly propelled toward their God-given destiny and call, they were they were they were hindered at that point, right? And so that's right. a relational aspect of it, but I also believe it's very very important to note that Pharaoh in the narrative of Exodus, it wasn't just a personal relationship type dynamic that was at work. There was a system that was mm. intentionally set in place yep. to enslave the people and to keep them down. Hmm. Isn't that so crazy? Because I think what we see here is what initially curry favor with Israel was the relationship and proximity that Joseph had to power. So Joseph was used by God to provide a a sustaining provision for his people based upon his relationship to Pharaoh. But what it shows us is that personal relationships eventually will fade because if the system does not change, when that person leaves, there's still going to be a systemic problem. So there came a Pharaoh, the Bible tells us, that didn't know Joseph. And it's like, yo, I don't know Joseph. Joseph gone. Like, what does this mean to me? And so they view, this Pharaoh viewed it simply from the the point of of utility, simply from the point of what can the children of Israel produce for us? And so it's really fascinating to see the ways in which systemic sin is addressed implicitly within the Bible in ways that we just don't care to look and we don't care to see. Absolutely. And one of the marks of systemic corruption and oppression is when people are dehumanized in that they become simply a means to an end. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because I really want to touch on this. And I I hinted at it in the last episode and you just put words to it. And so we talk about this whole idea of black men or people of color, you know, our context in particular, 
our lived context is as Black men. And so we have a personal resonance with kind of the ways in which we can be mistreated and misused. So you even said in the article, and I'm quoting you here, Black men are covertly conditioned to dismiss their heritage and to view Black and brown skin with suspicion. We feel a need to tone down our God-given personalities and styles for more respectable mannerisms, which I think is true. And we can both attest to that. But the part that really got me was the next paragraph where you talk about Black women. And you said the jaded lens of Eurocentric cultural norms and standards, which is fire, by the way, um, have blinded us to the value, intelligence, courage, resolve, virtue, and beauty of Black women. Many times, brave Black women have been left alone in the cold of battle while Black men enjoy the warmth of our proximity to power and whiteness. Bro, you were coming after us, man. Yo, you sit up here and you're like, yo, I'm just, I was like, why this, why am I getting this two piece? I'm reading this while I'm eating Cheerios and I'm getting a two piece from Aaron James about my proximity to power and whiteness. So I touched on it even within the PTM group. And so the reason why black women resonate with us calling their plight and speaking to what they have gone through is simply because black men have been silent on this for far too long. So talk a little bit about the ways in which that dehumanization crosses over into women, particularly Black women, as it relates to the church and the pharaoh complex. I think the first thing that I have to do in answering that question is to very plainly acknowledge my own sin and my own complicity within this dynamic. There were times where in a predominantly white setting, because one of our greatest fears is rejection. And one of our greatest needs is to be accepted for who we are and who God has created it to be, created us to be. Sometimes that's twisted because our need for acceptance and our fear of rejection, if we're not in a healthy environment, will cause us to make concessions that God did not call us to make. Hmm. And within that framework, one of the concessions that we make as Black men in predominantly white context, one of the concessions that that it's not always it's not always overt, but I definitely believe that many times it is an it is implied. There is a very real undertone there, right? Is that in mm-hmm. order for you to enjoy full acceptance, in order for you to be accepted and be really a part of the team and be embraced, there are certain things that you have to check at the door. And tragically, right. one of the things that is a part of that, um, and I don't think that I'm overstating this here, um, and, I, and I'm definitely open to pushback, I would Go say ahead, that bro. there's Say almost this, this, this rejection of Black women. That that is tied. Uh, that that that's one of those concessions. That that it seems like no, not that it seems that that we're called upon to make, whether covertly or overtly in some cases. And so what that has right. done is that that has left our amazing sisters out in the cold, mm-hmm. and we we see it in terms of how relationships work. Um, we see it in terms of uh, when, when, when folks are getting married and the couples that are being paired up and things like that, yeah, it just makes yeah. you go, Hmm. Huh. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Well, What's it's just there? exactly. And so it's, it's kind of this, this mentality. And I, I want to be very careful, you know, knowing that we're men talking about this, that 
you know, it's not us saying that, oh, men have to be the ones to empower women as if women aren't empowered themselves. Absolutely. Um, as if Absolutely. women don't have dignity themselves. Like everything doesn't run through black men or men That's in right. general. But the reality, I think, is it's very fascinating, I think, to me, the ways in which we're just simply called to ignore them. Yes. And I think that's the biggest visceral reaction that I've seen whenever this conversation is brought up is that if someone brings attention to the plight of Black women in predominantly white circles, particularly Black Christian women, particularly, and I'll go even further, Black Christian women who have theological insight yes, and who have very public gifts, the perception is and the reaction is, wow, you see me. And I think the reason why there's a you see me, you acknowledge me, is because for so long, what we have done as Black men is we have just completely ignored Black women. We've ignored their value. We've ignored their worth. We haven't censored any of their concerns. And we've defaulted to the reality of just these Eurocentric ideas of even viewing Blackness. And then by extension, the most hated part of Blackness will be Black womanhood. And so I think what a lot of people don't understand is that by simply acknowledging, simply listening, simply valuing, and simply seeing and hearing Black women, that we're undercutting Pharaoh's system, that we're undercutting Pharaoh's power structure. Man, we have so many gifted, amazing, talented, brilliant sisters, right? And... Yeah. Again, I think it's very important to highlight that it's not my place to, I mean, I, I, I'm speaking in terms of my complicity and, and, and just, and right. just being open about that and, and confessing that, but being very careful not to even exacerbate the issue and, and make it seem as if, you know, oh, you know, you're so, you're, you need somebody to speak for you or you need some, no, 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 that, that's not the case. I, I just simply, just man, just honestly coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, you know, what's funny about this is so many people think this is like an outside pressure thing that we just cave to culture and, oh, but this, you just, you just don't acknowledge the, man, the Bible says this, bro. Like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. this is a biblical conviction. This is coming from a biblical ethic. Like, sisters have confronted us on things privately and publicly, and we've had to stand in front of them and say we're wrong. You know, we're off, man. Like we totally missed it. And the way in which we acted was more in line with culture, was more in line than, you know, with Pharaoh than with the kingdom of God. So, you know, what people say this is a cultural thing. It's just I just laugh because I'm saying the culture mirrors really what's going on within the church. And the church has much to repent for in this area. Absolutely. And so you talk about this idea of Holy defiance, which is my new favorite phrase, and you quoted me, so I appreciate that. I will return the favor. Um, but you quoted me um, talking about holy defiance, and you drew some parallels between the descendants of Israel and the way in which we're seeing this shifting within white evangelicalism. Can you talk about some of those parallels for me? Yeah. And so the first thing is that the Exodus was not an event that took place in obscurity. It was very mm. open. It was a spectacle. It was a very public display of the power of God in the liberation of his people. Pharaoh himself wasn't simply the one being confronted. It was also 
the demonic principalities and powers over Egypt that were being confronted as well. It was a spiritual battle. And so when it comes down to the choice that we have to go quietly, and I understand people going quietly. And so this is not about telling people what they should do and how they should act and things of that nature. That's not what this is. Right. But and there's often a, like a heavy cost to that too. So if you don't go yeah. quietly, there's a cost to that. Yeah. And and so definitely being mindful of that. But one of the things that as I look at Exodus, I'm like, Lord, you were putting Pharaoh on blast. You were putting the system on blast. You were putting principalities uh, yes. and powers on blast. This was not private. And I believe that there are, as we all know, oppressive systems that are still in place. I don't deny that there has been progress, but at the same time, if we want genuine progress, if we want genuine justice, if we want uh, a genuine pursuit of a pure church, then what that requires us to do is to publicly confront and deal with issues, number one. Mm. But also what that requires us to do at times is to dig down to the very foundations of the institutions and come to grips with the fact that maybe the foundation is flawed. We say Mm. sometimes that things don't go wrong, they start start wrong. wrong. And so if something has started wrong, that means the foundation is off. And if the foundation is off, everything that we try and attempt to build on top of it is going to be off by virtue of the foundation being off. And so I've noticed that there is this, this outward show of solidarity, which I don't doubt many times comes from genuine uh, heartfelt desire, but it doesn't go far enough. Mm, Yeah, It doesn't go far enough because sometimes we have to say, you know what? Listen, listen, what do I desire more? Do we desire to be a community of people who make much of the name of Christ and represent him faithfully among ourselves and to the world? Or do we desire to hold on to the status quo and maintain the, the, the false integrity of a fundamentally corrupt system and, and, and still just try to paint over it and do well? Sometimes we have to recognize that within the kingdom of God, especially as it pertains to man-made institutions, there's not one man-made institution that's too big to fall. Hmm. Bruh, bruh, that is so that is so true. And I think what we mean especially by that is a lot of people relate this whole idea of God building his church with a specific denomination or tribe. And so I think we should question why we think that our tribe is the only when we're when we're using metaphors related to oh, well, the church isn't going to fail. Well, it doesn't mean our denomination isn't going to have its house cleaned. Like, I mean, that's not what it means, you know? Absolutely. It just means that the witness of God and this remnant of people won't fade away. Um, But the reality is sometimes we need to be held accountable. And what's shocking to me, Aaron, is the ways in which we've selectively applied scriptures. So you see in 1 Kings, the way that Solomon even began with an idea of wisdom and asked the Lord for wisdom, but slowly as time elapsed, became so close to cultural power that he was marrying all these wives, that he was 
instituting slavery to build, you know, uh, to have construction projects and to build things in service of the Lord, that he was adopting gods and idols, that there's always this sense of idolatry. And so why do you think that people are blind to the reality that this has happened to some of our greatest heroes, quote unquote, and sheroes within the Bible? Why do you think we're blind to the reality that it can happen to us? I believe a lot of it has to do with the fact that when we enjoy a particular level of success and notoriety, and when that success and notoriety brings about proximity to power and influence within the culture, when it becomes painfully obvious that in order for us to proceed the way that the Lord has called us to proceed, we make the choice far too many times to maintain the proximity to power, to maintain mm. and try to hold on to the cultural influence instead of embracing marginalization the way that God may be intending us to do so, and also to take the necessary losses that come with following Christ. Our salvation is marked by a call to carry our crosses as we deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so there is this inherent theme of self-preservation that not only exists on a personal level, but also exists in terms of institutions, right? Because people right. are institutions. And so I really believe that that has a lot to do with it. So for instance, we bring up prophetic presence in scripture. One of my favorite examples Um, that is still quite frightening to me, (laughs) if if I could just be honest, is Josiah. Josiah is a young king. There's an established culture already. They find the word of God, but it turns everything upside down. Hmm. And the necessary changes, the necessary repentance, the necessary destruction of idols, the necessary reordering and purification of the priesthood, the necessary reinstitution of the Passover was so revolutionary that it kind of turned everything on its head. I mean, scripture actually says that (laughs) pertaining to Josiah's Passover, there wasn't one like it before it and there wasn't one like it afterwards, right? right? And so that dude, let me tell you, let's just be honest. Many times we balk at that. Many times when we come face to face with the word of the Lord and what is necessary for us to conform to the righteous standards of God and what's necessary for us to be in line with God's definition of justice and the necessary cost to us that's related to that, many times we We bounce from that. Yeah, we bounce from that. We don't want that. You know, it's funny because when you talk about cost, you know, one of my Another haunting passage, you know, where we see a prophet confronting a king is, you know, one of the most famous ones is in 2 Samuel 12 with Nathan. And what I find very interesting about the way that Nathan confronts David is that Nathan frames his confrontation with David with a story and an analogy of plunder. Like he frames David Mm. as a robber. Yeah, He frames David as one who has much and decides to take from the one who has a little. 
And it's so it's the way he frames that and the indignation of David, which is hilarious because, you know, David even says, well, if this man did this, well, then he needs to die and he needs to pay back. Like he needs to, he needs to pay back more than what he took. Like, so it's like, oh, you know, give him reparations. Anyway, side note. But so it's just <laughs> kind of funny because David is like, is positing this idea but Nathan is framing this from this sense of plunder. And how often is it that we become participators in plunder by our proximity to power, by standing next to the people who are taking from you know those who wouldn't have as much, those who may not have as many resources, those who may not have as many avenues and opportunities. And what we think is there's an illusion, I think, sometimes that our success or the success of an organization that we're a part of or the success of a tribe that we're a part of is somehow related to true flourishing. Like true biblical flourishing is going to look like this. And that's a very westernized, Americanized concept because when you look at a lot of these prophets in the Old Testament especially, they ain't have that much, man. And I mean, beyond that, most of them got killed. And beyond that, most of them got killed before they saw any fruit. So what are we expecting and how are our expectations of the prophetic witness become even westernized and americanized, you know? Absolutely. I think one of the main ways is the way that we have sacrificed a healthy cultural corporate identity and a healthy interdependence for rugged individualism. Yeah, come on, bro. You got to say that. Absolutely. Wherever rugged individualism prevails and it comes and crosses paths with prophetic witness, rugged individualism always excuses you of your complicity in terms Mm. of systemic issues. Mm. Because, Mm. well, it's not me, it's them. Bruh. (laughs) I can separate myself. Yeah. From the because issue. I'm the highest expression of my particular tribe. And so exactly. I separate myself from the ills of my tribe. Hmm. And I never have to wrestle with my complicity. I never hmm. take the time to go before the Lord and, and to have necessary conversations, to listen, to become a student of those that previously I would dismiss outright. I never take the time to wrestle with that because after all, again, you know, it's me. Like you said, I'm the highest expression uh, of, Mm. and, and so we end up thinking far better of ourselves corporately. (laughs) Because we fail to wrestle with our complicity individually. Mm. And it hurts us in the long run. No, that's crazy, bro. Wow. It really does. It hurts us in in the long run, man. And I think that, listen, when we begin to be honest about our own complicity, when we begin to be honest about how we have sacrificed righteousness and holiness, how we have silenced and quenched genuine prophetic witness in order to maintain a proximity to power, it is potentially a life it's 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 a reorientation <laughs> and there is a lot that can change as we both have experienced but in the right. end it's worth it 
because we don't define success the way the world defines success. You know, the fear of the Lord is obeying God regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the cost. Hmm. And so when it comes to, and, and I mention that because th- this really is that big of an issue. This, this really is that kind of an issue. And, right. and, and so when it comes down to whether or not we're going to obey or whether we're going to preserve life, well, I'm pretty sure that the Lord Jesus spoke to that. He said, whoever desires to save their lives will lose it. <laughs> right. But right. if you lose your life, you'll find it. And I believe that the, the genuine repentance that brings about taking the losses that the Lord has called us to take brings us closer to him. Mm-hmm. It enables us to stand in greater solidarity with those that the Lord has called us to stand in solidarity with. Mm-hmm. And it enables us to speak prophetically with integrity because you cannot have a strong prophetic witness when you are obsessed with your proximity to power. And so what's really what I'm saying here is that, you know, and, and people have even asked, even even in the way that we address this, I think sometimes it gets missed because of, I think, the individualism, this idea that, oh, well, you're saying white evangelicals are the enemy. And I think the the reality that I think a lot of people miss is that we're not talking about people in lieu of systems. We're talking about a an idol, which has been created. And that idol has been created in our westernized, Americanized crucible of Christianity. And that is an enemy to true Christianity. But we're not fighting against flesh and blood here. You know, we're fighting against principalities, powers rulers of darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places, as Paul would say. And so we recognize that to expose the ways in which our proximity may have gotten a little bit closer to idols than what it should have been, it requires a confrontation. And you said something very interesting with which we'll close. You You said the idea of public prophetic witness has to be so strong that it literally creates a dividing line. It literally creates a separator between our stance and the stance of those who would say, well, I'd rather be, I'd rather have a proximity to power. Or I'd rather be in a place of, of success, or I'd rather have this comfortable relationship. Talk about what that looks like for us and some of your heart's desires as it relates to the way in which we decide we won't go quietly. And so- There is division that's unhealthy for the body of Christ. But what I've discovered, as undoubtedly you've seen and we've talked about it and many other of our listeners have seen as well, is that there have been calls for unity that really were calls for conformity and assimilation. Right. Because unity is to be rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word, according to his nature and character and his design for his people. And whenever there is an unhealthy dynamic that is at work for the health of the body of Christ and for a faithful witness to the greatness of his name, who he is amongst ourselves and to the world, there are certain issues that are so important that a dividing line has to be created 
so that a plain, bold, and gracious call to repentance is facilitated within that. And so confrontation is important. Now, the motivation for this confrontation is not vengeance. It's love. It's love for God and it's love mm-hmm. for our neighbor. It's right. when you have the insight to see that that your brother, your sister, your neighbor, the, the people that we uh, are in relationship with, when we're on a trajectory that is leading us towards destruction or that doesn't faithfully represent the nature and the character of God, doesn't make much of him, uh, that that's not in line with his word and his design, someone has to call that out, right? And the the desired end mm-hmm. is to see reconciliation and repentance. Repentance, and, I, and I'm speaking first and foremost, repenting before the Lord, reconciliation with him, which in turn should lead to repentance, re- reconciliation, and res- restoration among ourselves. There has to be a dividing line. It has to be made plain that that is sinful. That mm. is not righteous. We're not talking about personal preferences here. We're talking about principle. And yeah. so it creates a dividing line. Like a, a, a great example is when John the baptizer said, you should not have her as your wife. Bro, that's a dividing line, right? <laughs> it's a power, right? Right? It's speaking so clearly and so truthfully that to deny what is being spoken, like you have to make a decision that either I am in sin or I'm not. Right. Hmm. Either I am being conformed to the righteous nature and character of God here or I'm not. And that's the kind of dividing line I'm talking about. Man, Aaron, thank you so much for writing this article, man, Confronting Pharaoh, Why We Won't Go Quietly. You guys need to go read it at thewitnessbcc.com. Aaron, thank you for coming on this episode of the podcast. And thank you for being, truly being the pastor of the witness, the (laughs) bishop of the witness, man. We appreciate you, bro. It's always a pleasure, brother. Thank you.